Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... This episode of the Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Picture Book Summit. Do you dream of creating picture books that will change a child's life? I know that I do. Learn how to find your voice at Picture Book Summit, a world-class online conference for picture book authors and illustrators. Join Picture Book Summit on Saturday, October 3rd, 2020, for keynotes from their award-winning best-selling lineup author-illustrator Sophie Blackall, author Lisa Klein-Ransom, and author-illustrator Peter H. Reynolds. Register by August 12th and get $100 off the regular price at picturebooksummit.com forward slash winner. That's picturebooksummit.com forward slash winner. I honestly, Matthew, I don't know how educators are handling the stress of the unknown right now. I mean, my heart goes out to y'all so much. This is an effort to tell a story out loud. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 616. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm joined by Christina Suntornvat. Christina's newest middle grade novel is A Wish in the Dark and brings readers to a city on the brink of revolution. For Bong, Nok, and Sunkit, there is much to be learned about life. Who can you trust? Who is worthy of love and light? Where do you turn when the ones you look to are gone? It's a sweeping an exceptional story, a retelling of Les Miserables set in Thailand, and a reminder that every person has the potential to change the world and share a light. Please welcome my guest, Christina Suntornvat, author of A Wish in the Dark. So my name is Christina Suntornvat, and my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a children's book author. I, I write lots of different types of children's books. I write picture books like Simon at the Art Museum and The Blunders, Accounting Catastrophe, and I also write chapter books like the Diary of an Ice Princess series. 
I write fiction, which we're going to be talking about one of my fiction novels, uh, A Wish in the Dark. And I, and I also write nonfiction. So I have a, a book about the Thai cave rescue that's coming out in October of 2020. And that's completely nonfiction. So lots of different types of books from me. I just realized, welcome, by the way, Christina, I just realized that I read all across all of your stuff, which is awesome. (laughs) I'm like one of your readers that grows up and has read you their whole life. Only I did it all in the course of like a year or something. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) My biggest fan. I'm so glad you're here. Your book, The Blunders, is, I know that's not like our focus today. That book is ridiculous. Let me just say it is wonderful for folks who haven't encountered it yet. It's about like these these 10 siblings, if I'm remembering this right, who yeah. the, the, the parents or mom or somebody says, go out and play. And then they worry they've lost a sibling because as they're counting, they, oh, I don't want to give it away, but they can't seem to count to 10. No matter yes. which method of counting they employ, they can't seem to get to the full count number that they need. And so they fear they have lost a sibling. That's a that's a like safe way to describe it, right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, did you know that I before I wrote that, I kind of maybe thought, oh, this would be a cool idea. But I I told that story many, many times to kindergarten classes when my daughter was in kindergarten and I would go up to the school to volunteer whenever I would have a class and I would have to entertain them. I would tell that story. So they really helped me like make it ridiculous. Like we made it ridiculous together. (laughs) I love knowing that you you like road tested it with children, but also it. I got to say upon you saying it, it reads that way, too. It reads like a like a reader's theater. It reads like a felt board story. Like it reads like something that that you could tell orally as well. Does that make sense? That, yeah, that that's my secret weapon is I try to, I, it's harder now that my kids are older and they're so busy and they don't want to sit and listen. But my, my secret, my secret sauce to the writing process is I try to like tell some part of the story out loud to a kid. It's just invaluable to like get their reaction if they're if if you get get them like leaning forward and being like yeah and then what like oh you know you have something good right <laughs> yeah and you're saying something important with that verbiage there that you try to tell the story out loud not read what you've written out loud but tell them out loud that's great yeah yeah I highly recommend it that's always my my secret writing tip I try to give writers to be like, find some kids. If you don't have them, find them, get oh, some neighbor kids some and like, kids. just tell your story. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear that. Okay. So we are brought together today primarily because of uh, a novel you wrote. There's a lot of reasons why we're together. I mean, I, I, <laughs> we, my daughter and I, we read, or I read two, uh, Jules, I read her, the ice princess. I forget if it was the first or the second one. We, um, you were so kind to share them with us and, um, she (laughs) likes to pick up, what are we reading tonight, babe? And she just sort of (laughs) picks up whatever we're reading. Um, so she's not necessarily a sequential reader, (laughs) Uh (laughs) but (laughs) but really enjoyed those stories. But I, I think, I think I told you a lot. I hope I told you a lot. Uh, I chronicled, perhaps, with you um, my reading of A Wish in the Dark and how I've got to say it was, this is phenomenal storytelling. And I'm going to tell you up front, Christina, that I will struggle 
to articulate to you what this book means to me. I think it will be one that I'll be telling you over the years to come what it means to me. I wonder if your readers will have the same experience. It is it is a huge story, an epic story, and a beautifully spoken story. And so I, I am really, really grateful that we get to talk about this book and that you brought this book into the world. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Matthew. That means so much to me. I, I really do think it's the book of my heart. Um, you know, I, I, I always feel like the book that I'm writing currently is the one that's like, you know, the most important to me, but even now after a wish in the dark is done, it's definitely still the book of my heart. The, the story. So I knew going into it, and I'm going to ask you to, to book talk it in a second, but I knew going into it from reading the, the back of, I listened to middle grade novels, right? So I listened on audiobook and I knew going into it that it was uh, a twist on a nod to Les Miserables, which I haven't seen performed in many years. I don't even think I've watched the movie adaptation, the recent one with Hugh Jackman. I don't know if I even finished it, probably because I couldn't stand Russell Crowe singing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that Les Miserables was, I think, the first musical that I can remember going to see. We went in high school to a performance in Baltimore. I remember it being performed. Um, but I don't remember it enough I think to draw too many parallels to this story other than to just feel like that was a really big story. And likewise, this is a really big story. So can I ask you to to first share what is A Wish in the Dark? And then I want to get into how this story came about for you. But first, what yeah. what is the story for you? Yeah, so A Wish in the Dark is about a boy named Pong, and Pong is born in what's pretty much a prison. Uh, and he, he has a best friend in the prison. They're both orphans, and the rule in their world is that if you're a child in the prison, you have to stay there until you turn 13, and that's when you're released, which, of course, is a terrible rule, and there are many unfair, unjust rules in Bong's world. So before he turns 13, he finds an opportunity to escape, and he escapes the prison. He floats down the river, and he makes it to a little village where there is a Buddhist temple, and there is a monk in the temple who hides him and protects him so that no one will discover him. And Bong thinks that he's going to be hiding there forever. Maybe he can just kind of disguise himself as a monk forever. But then years later, uh, the prison warden's family shows up in the village, and the prison warden's daughter recognizes Bong. And she is determined to bring him to justice because she she is the type of girl who has been raised to do everything right and in her mind the right thing to do would be to bring him back and and make him serve his consequences so she hunts him down and she uh there there's a big chase between them and in the process of the chase he goes back to this city and discovers a city on the brink of a revolution and and has to decide if he's going to help the people or help save him himself so yes it's a twist on Les Mis and I think that you know if anybody's familiar with the musical or with the novel they're gonna hear some um 
some similarities in there. And it takes place in Thailand. It's set in a, in a fantasy world that's inspired by Thailand and specifically the Thailand of my dad's youth. So it's very, very much inspired by stories of my dad when, when he was growing up. Your characters, I, I believe fully that you love your characters. I think about Bong <laughs> and I think about Nok and Songket and, oh, what's the fa- father, Chan? What's the father's the monk's name? Yeah, Father Chum. Father Chum. Oh, yes. Who, oh, there's so much here. Um, I, I think about, now I listened on audio, right? So I have this like bizarre experience as I'm realizing of not seeing names or locations written down over and over. Oh, yeah. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm realizing that my recall is based on hearing a name said or hearing a location said, which almost makes my recall perhaps more visual. Interestingly. Yeah, I bet that does. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah. one of the first... Yeah, I do a lot. Mm, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say one of the first um, things that I remember from this story, which was a, a very clear visual was that when Bong is in the, 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 all of these children uh, are in this prison until if their, if their um, parent has been imprisoned, in this case, the mom has been imprisoned, um, they can be released when they are, when they come of age at 13, I believe was the number, right? Mm-hmm, that's but right. the emperor, emperor or the prisons, there is a visit, Go- both. The governor. Yeah, the governor. Yeah, there easy. it is. The governor visits and uh, the governor, I'm probably putting the governor even higher than he should be because of that magical power of being able to give light. Right. So I'm like lifting this character to like some deity level or something. But yes, but the governor has this ability to to create light. And he says this awful, awful thing um, that is this message that you end up. It ends up being a. um sort of a refrain that we that we visit over and over again which is that um light shines on the worthy did i get that right light yeah. shines on the worthy mhm yes yeah that there there's several messages that are that he repeats and that get repeated by the characters i you know and i I did that because I think there are so many messages in our society that we live with that we don't even question because we've heard them so many times. And so that's one of them. Yes, that's right. So when he says that light shines on the worthy, um, you know, Pong uh, internalizes that and he thinks, that he's not worthy because he's born, he's born in a place, he's living in a place that's in darkness. Um, and he struggles with that yeah. the, the entire story. And he looks on to the city of lights and mm-hmm. knows that like you, you are over here and you are separated for a reason. It's very powerful, very evocative. But when we go, when he has, um, the opportunity in the beginning of the, the story to escape and he finds this monastery or he's rescued, um, I love that we have this marking, right? This marking that says you are this prisoner, a marking that only the governor can remove because it was given. It was, it, 
given from that magic that he has. So you can't take it away. But Bong mm-hmm. is is protected from this via this monk through blessings, through blessings that mm-hmm. seem. I can't even remember that. Again, I don't have a copy of the book in front of me to leave through. But I remember that there are messages that seem a little silly, um, but but end up holding meaning. But they almost seem like, yeah, but that's never going to happen. Like, may you never be, I don't know, kicked by a donkey. And you think, why would I ever <laughs> be kicked by a donkey? I'm never going to see a donkey in my life. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yet they, they do hold um, some sort of prophetic meaning as well as they literally cover up this marking and in that way they they very in a very real way they protect bong yeah you know that is, that is actually that the bracelets so when bong goes to the buddhist temple the the head monk there ties bracelets around his wrist and that's where his his prison mark is on his wrist and uh and the bracelets cover it up so that's disguising him so he can hide there and that is a a thai buddhist tradition uh if you go to a buddhist temple on you know on certain days the the monks tie a string around your wrist and uh they'll they'll give a blessing or make a wish for you um and sometimes the i i have different ones i have ones that are like just a really simple white string and i have ones that are more like a thickly braided uh bracelet and and so um that yeah that was just a way for me to bring that tradition into the book in a way that made sense with the story yeah father chom is my favorite character <laughs> so good right i feel like he's probably a lot of people's favorite characters but he he just doesn't there's something about the way that he believes in pong and i i can't quite remember the the turn of text that you share about that when when he sort of questions, but why would you believe me if I'm this person that escaped from this prison, if you knew where I came from? And and I remember walking away with this sentiment of, I I don't need to know all of those things. It's important, like, who you are and where you are is what's important. Um, yeah. Like, where you yeah, belong he... is different from where you are. Do you know? Hey there, book nerds. You know what's even better than hearing bookmakers share stories of how their ideas became the stories you love? Having those stories in your home, your classroom, your library, or your life to be enjoyed over and over. Bookshop.org allows you to purchase your favorite books from the show and support local bookstores while doing it. I even maintain lists of all the books shared each season, so it's easy to find what you're looking for. Visit matthewcwinner.com and click on Shop, or use the link in the show notes to find your next favorite story. Yeah, he's totally, I mean, you, you said that about the governor saying that light shines on the worthy and Father Chom's complete opposite. He believes that light should shine on every, everyone the same. So, you know, and by that he means compassion. He gives compassion to every person, uh, no matter what. And he's, 
he is who I wish I, I want to be more like him. I think it's oh. challenging <laughs> to be like that. <laughs> but he's my, my moral guide <laughs> that, you know, and, and just what he's able to do and how he's able to change people by doing that, by shining a light on every single person who crosses his path. I think that in the way that you give Bong that light in, in so early in the story, he is able to be a light bearer, a light carrier throughout the story. And I think about how, how he, he becomes chased by knock by this girl who has her own past and who is, who is trying to achieve a certain set of, of, of responsibility or recognition because because that's the path that she's on and what it means for any of us to be on certain paths that we feel so sure about until we cross paths with another that disrupts that. I mean, Nock, for her credit, is really on this straight, true path of what she feels like should guide her forward all the way until she Mm -hmm. finds herself in the same circumstances as Pong. I'll put it, I'll put it that way. It's just, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, out of all of the characters, you know, I, I think that Nook is, was most like myself when I'm writing the book. I'm, I feel like she resembles me the most. Um, like a she, pragmatic she, truth seer or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or just that, you know, she's lived a life that she she, she has, her, has her own hardships and her own heartaches for sure. She's yeah. got these secrets. And really, she, you know, she doesn't think she's worthy either, just mm. like Bong doesn't. But um, she's lived a life of privilege where she's never really had to think about why things are the way they are and why her circumstances are so much better than Bong's. Um, And it's really not until that she's forced to confront her privilege, that she changes her mind about a lot of things and just really opens her eyes to all of those, those sayings that she internalized that, you know, the sayings of the governor and of society and says like, Oh wait, that none of that was right. All of that was a lie that I had been, uh, repeating over the years. So she, she really, you know, it's really not her fault. I think that she starts off being so, um, so, so righteous and she's, she starts off in the villain role, but it's not her fault that she is there and she gets, she's going to get herself out of it. (laughs) No, it's interesting too the way as you've written it, she is sort of in this villain role. I almost don't want to call her this villain, mm-hmm. but I, I, upon again reflecting on reading, I realize that there is a moment in the story where our reader gaze turns from feeling like Nook is a threat to turning to the governor and realizing, oh, it wasn't just that he's in this different, like, uh, this, this different societal level that he can look down on people but there's actually some pretty pretty bad things going on with this with this man mm-hmm. who is tainting the way everyone else is thinking and and feeling like they need to question what they rely on and who sources 
strength and light and, and resource to everyone else. Yeah, that, that I'm so so glad that you say that there is a moment when you when you shift about her. I she was so hard to write. I felt like it was so important to get her right because I I knew that for many readers, um, you know, I say she's like me, but I think for many readers, she is going to be the character that that makes readers question things and then look back, look at their own life, look at their own, you know, their own circumstances and the, you know, what have they been internalizing? It's going to be through milk. And so she was, she was tricky out of everybody. I rewrote her scenes the most. I, at first I didn't have her, you know, the, the book is dual point of view. So we're going back and forth between Bong and Nook. And my first draft, I didn't have her point of view. And then I quickly realized, oh, that's a mistake. We have to see it through her eyes and experience this, this change through her eyes. Um, but so I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that that happened for you. <laughs> it, it did. And I, I think that going between the two voices also in a really cool way was like a timeline check. It was, wait, are we picking up exactly where this one left off? Are we rewinding? Are we going to overlap? <laughs> and especially when we got into the city, I felt like that was that was really palpable because there was this tension of uh, not, it's not, I'm, I guess this is the phrase that you could use. Like it was almost a little cat and mouse, like who uh-huh. is seeing the other and escaping the other. And we're going to this underground market where, um, these different lights are being sold and, and, and where, where, where is safe? Who can you trust? Who's going to turn you in? And I feel like you did not cheat the readers and you had many opportunities to cheat the readers and you didn't. And so I want to ask you about actually writing this book and about how closely you did uh, map it like Les Mis and, and how much that maybe just served as a springboard because this is, this is a big book. I think it clocked in around nine and a half hours on audio, which was like two weeks of running for me. It was awesome. Yeah. It was legit. Um, great. Yeah. I was just, <laughs> I I have it in front of me. I was like, oh, how many pages is that? Yeah, well, you know, Les Mis is like sixteen hundred pages. Sure, it is, right? How many pages is <laughs> so it? Like, is it like four I or five? It's... Uh, let, let's see. It's, it's so funny that I never know. Yeah, it's three fifty. Three fifty. So okay. it's long. That's good. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what, Christina? Let me just be upfront and say too, it was exactly as long as it needed to be. Oh, good. Do you know what I mean by that? That's another one of those, like, I can't possibly ask you to explain how you write a book to be just the right length. How do you make it that each of those pages counts? But we're coming out of that wave of, I feel like we hit that wave of, of Harry Potter got to be such a big deal that then we had to have super long books. And then I was reading books where I was like, this book does not need to be this long. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I know. And I'm always trying to write them shorter. I like, you know, uh, Ron Smith is one of my favorite uh, fantasy writers uh, for middle grade. And his books are always, they're never that long. I'm like, how did you do that? How did you do that? (laughs) I'm always like, how do you write so short and be still so good? Well, this is like Um, Tori Maldonado, right? Who writes novels that are like 120 pages. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you do that. 
but it's I such think, a skill. Yeah, I, I think that but if we it, go back to every story, that... every story needs to be as long as it needs to be. Right. Yes, my editor will be happy to know you felt it was as long as it needed to be. <laughs> yeah. No. So for Lamez, I mean the that that book was a, a very important book for me uh, in in my life. It really um, I, I read it as a teenager, but I I was encountered the story as a middle grade reader. My, my mom told the story to me out loud, speaking of uh, the tradition of telling kids stories out loud. She told it to me as she was reading it um, when I was about 10. But then I, d- I read it for myself when I was a teen and it really just left a lasting impression on me. It really changed, I think, you know, my worldview. I think it changed my political views quite a bit. Oh, wow. Um yeah, I, I think it set me on set me on a path, um, it, you know. It, and of course, the themes in the book are thinking about the difference between law and justice, and just really examining, you know, how do we treat each other? How is our society built to protect some people and be cruel to other people? There, there is just these big ideas I hadn't thought about before. So well, when I was writing, yeah, oh yeah, no, yeah I was going to say it, it sounds like then. And I, I'm so sorry to jump on your on your words, but to have it be a story that you have internalized since childhood is neat that it then expresses itself back out in this way through through the lens of your dad's upbringing. Like you said, the setting is like where your dad grew up. There's just different lenses that you've placed on it to tell your story that that it's beautiful that that book had that effect on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the book is, um, in Les Mis, compassion is a huge theme of the book and and how how one person's compassionate act can influence the trajectory of so many more people. You know, that, that really is a major idea in the book. And that, um, you know, com- it, just, it made so much sense when I started thinking about, okay, if I'm going to read, if I'm going to tell this story, where is it going to be? What's the setting? And I started thinking like, oh, maybe it could be in Thailand because I had really wanted to write a book set in Thailand. And then, you know, compassion is such a, an important pillar in Buddhism and in the teachings of Buddha. So it just, it all was clicking that, that it would fall into place there. And my, my dad was a Buddhist monk, um, when he was younger, it's very common in Thailand for men and, and boys, older boys to become monks at some point in their life. So many Thai men have done that at some point in their life. And my dad did it twice. So those stories that he told of, you know, living in the monastery and his experiences as a monk were always with me. So I just brought that in for Father Cham. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Christina, why do you have any insight as to why that is such a common experience for boys growing up in Thailand or for men? I suppose you said just at some point um, in your life. Do just, that? Yeah, it's I mean, it's a real it's the, a real fundamental part of the Buddhist religion their, mm. and their faith um, in Thailand. uh the you know temples are very important and um the mo- the monastery is important and the relationship of 
you know, it's, it's different when you live in a giant big city, but most people in Thailand, you know, they live in villages. And so in a village, a smaller town, the temple is like the center of the town. It's where you, you know, your community gathers. It's where you go to pray and celebrate and grieve and, and, and all of those things. And, um, you know, a, a villagers are, their lives are very interwoven with the lives of their monks. And so I, I don't know, it's, it's just a tradition that's always been like that. And it's not, um, it's not every country that is Buddhist doesn't have that, those same traditions. Um, but yeah, Thailand Mo- yeah. most of my cousins have done that. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's cool. And it, it, yeah, it's always been something that's been very interesting to me. And of course, you know, for, um, women don't, don't, it's the same for women. It's a very, um, the gender roles are very defined in Thailand. I don't, question those in the book but that that is how it is yeah well i love that for this reader at least you really brought me to a completely new locale um with children and characters that i found i was really invested in and i can't imagine how you plotted this out to grow the story that you did, but but what you created with with these individual characters that feel like they each had a chance to matter, um, I think speaks a lot to who you are as a writer and and to what you think of your readers. Did you do you remember trying to write this book? Do you remember if if it came through chapters, through voices, through quotes? Do you remember what that? what that beginning inspiration looked like? <laughs> this is always, it's always so funny for me to go back and think about how I wrote a book because so much, be, I'm, I, I've got two young kids and, you know, several years ago, especially even now, I'm all, whenever I'm working on something, it is forever, it, sometimes years before I actually start putting words onto paper. It's just like an God, idea man. that I'm like, when, oh, when I have time, I'm going to write that. Yep. And it just kind of, it's something I just think about in the back of my mind and never get a chance to work on. So, um, but yeah, I, I knew, you know, you talk about readers and, and what I feel for children, for, for readers. I was definitely thinking um, about, about kids who might read the story who may have been told either straight up or just implicitly through messages in society that they're not worthy just like just like bong and and really just like nok was believing um you know i one idea in the book that that i think comes forward is how we put labels on each other and the the repercussions of those labels and how it can follow someone um so the you know Bong being labeled at such a young age as someone who's really not going to amount to much really follows him. It really haunts him through his life. And um, so I was so I was thinking about that. And I knew that I wanted him not just to um, believe in himself and to, you know, uh, to to realize his own worth. But I wanted him to really impact every single person around him. I truly believe that about about kids, you know, every, every person 
has the potential to change the world and make it so much better. And I, I, I think we say that and we, you know, we, we see that on posters and we say that, you know, like everyone can, you can be whatever you want. You can change the world. But if we really believe it about every single person, that every person has the potential to shine a light on our world, then we should treat each of those people with com- the compassion that they need to get to that place. Um, yes. And so that you know, that was a big driving driving <laughs> impetus behind me writing the book for sure. Well, it sounds too like you're you in your writing process spend a lot of time germinating your idea. So you plant that seed, and and it takes time before it it sprouts in any way. And I think that 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 is very common for some writers in particular that those seeds are being planted and you don't know how they're going to be expressed later. But to see how the story was expressed through that value that you hold of every person, of believing that every person has the capacity to change the world and that it, it's really, if I can send your words back to you in that way, it's it's our responsibility to shine that light on one another as well. I think of Sunket and how when, you know, he and Bong were these friends from this, this prison and when Bong got out, uh, it's probably fair to say that he never thought he'd ever be reunited with his friend. Mm-hmm. And not to give anything away, because I've clearly this book is is so special to me that I don't want to give a thing away to people, <laughs> which is a very odd experience for me to be having right now, which is wonderful. But that means when we're done recording, I'm just going to get to spill it all with you off recording. <laughs> but um, when the two are reunited later, Pong, upon seeing his friend, it, it seems immediately is filled with guilt that I left him behind. And the fact that you don't let him put down that weight of, I left my friend behind. What kind of friend am I that I left him behind? Was something so affecting to me that to then have Sunkit allow Bong to release that weight in the way that he does was beautiful was just so heart affecting to me it it was everything to me that might have been one of my single favorite moments in that book because i couldn't not feel that moment in a in a way that just filled my entire body oh that's so great to hear that that's their relationship is very much based on my dad's relationship with his friends that he grew up with um, my dad didn't have nearly uh, as hard of a childhood as Bong. He had both parents. He did not grow up in a jail. But he, he had his pretty scrappy childhood. He was pretty poor um, and, you know, was working at a really young age, was running around in the streets at a young age. And uh, I, I've just noticed his his childhood friends, they're all still close, the ones who are still living. Um, he had his best friend, it was a man named Somkit, who lived down nice. the street. And, yeah. <laughs> and I I mean, they, they had a closeness that I think sometimes we don't allow 
it's too few the times that we allow boys to show their emotions and their love for each other. You know, yes. that my dad just has so much love for his friends. They really are, you know, brothers, but not, not quite brothers. And, um, yeah, so I'm so glad that that relationship resonated. There, Christina, is so much, really, so much for us to talk about with this book. And I, I, I count it a privilege to be connected with you because I I know and I feel that I can just email you and be like, I was thinking of these characters again today uh, and that that will be okay. But before before we go, I want to give an opportunity. I know it doesn't come out till October, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about All 13 because I remember when you and I first connected on social media, I believe it's around the time you and I first connected on social media, that I was seeing you in Thailand doing the research and and, and writing this book and, and having these interviews. And I, I just remember being drawn to what this research process was like for you. So do you want to take a couple minutes to talk about All 13? Yeah, so that that is the story of the Thai Cave Rescue, which actually uh, two years ago yesterday, the boys uh, went into the cave and were trapped. So it's two years ago today that they were just, you know, realizing that they're not going to be able to get the boys out. It's just kind of chilling for me to think about that, that uh, two years, you know, on two this years. day in history. Wow. But um, yeah, isn't, isn't that amazing? Um, and so, yes, I, I was actually in Thailand when they, when they were missing um, and really just followed the story. In two, so two years ago today, I, I would have been there and I would have been seeing on television, oh, there's this missing soccer team. People don't know where they are. They think they may have been trapped in a cave. And then over the course of my trip in Thailand, just uh, seeing it blow up into the biggest global news story, like everyone on the planet was talking about it. And then, um, yes, went back in uh, a few months later after I got the the deal to write the book and went and interviewed uh, many of the people who were there on the ground. So I interviewed a lot of Thai rescuers. Um, interviewed the boys families I got to meet the boys and meet their coach and you know you talk about we were talking about boys who are more like brothers those boys are so much like brothers they love each other so much um and uh it, so all, all the the account that I wrote it's a middle grade account it goes back and forth between the boys underground and the rescuers up top and just chronicles their struggles um, because they were both, even though the boys were really just sitting in one place, their struggle to just survive and keep their hopes up and keep their, their mental fortitude up uh, was definitely as much of a struggle as the people who were working with all these billions of gallons of water and scuba diving equipment and all of these logistics above ground. And then, um, and then, of course, we get to the point where they come together and, and put the rescue together. So it was a great it's a it was just just like the biggest honor of my life that I got to work on this story and tell the story and meet the people who are involved. And it's got this wonderful. This wonderful book, just full of photographs of of the rescuers, of the boys of Thailand, just an opportunity to really feel there whereas much of the news feels like over there 
instead you can feel you you really help bring us to that country and and to those boys and and to a, a, a nation in fear of of how these boys would be rescued amid just torrential downpour for for days and weeks if i remember yeah, it was, they were uh, underground for ten days before they found them, right. and then it was it was another eight days before they brought them out. And I, I'm so glad you say that because I, about being transported to Thailand, I, I really wanted to do that with the book. I really wanted to, I, I, you know, I know most readers who are reading it are not going to be Thai, or maybe they haven't been to Thailand before. And I felt like you, in order for you to un- feel like the significance of all of the moments in the story in the way that I felt them and I the way I knew they happened you had to know about Thailand you had to know about the people and the place and you needed to feel like you were there so uh so I'm I'm so glad that you, that you got that or you're getting that from well, looking at the pictures yeah and I think <laughs> that it's beautiful too to to think in in the way that you've written it I haven't read the entire thing I'm a very slow reader. We've talked about this before. But, yeah. <laughs> but, and but, we don't have an audiobook yet. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's awesome that they're making an audiobook, by the way, though. That's wild. Um, but to have to have um, your voice and your intention, the way that it's seated in this book makes me as well feel like it's not just about what things happen to people, but that these are people. And that these people and their lives and and their country and their families, everything about these people is significant. And everything about when I say these people, I mean all people everywhere. When stuff is happening to people, it's not just the stuff happening to them that matters. It's the people themselves. And I feel like that in that way makes how you're telling this story very different from some other perhaps like historical accounts of, of other events I've read before where I feel like we spend a lot of time getting to know why the event was such a big deal, but not really getting to know that like a human life matters. And so every event is a big deal because human lives matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean that, that, and that just comes from meeting people in person and, and just, wanting to convey um, the significance to them and wanting to make sure I'm honoring them and everything that they felt. I mean, when, when I met people, you know, I still keep in touch with the people I interviewed for the book. Um, and still, even when I talk to them, they're still so struck by the impossibility of what happened and how, how momentous that event was and really changed people's lives who are involved with it. So yes. I tried to bring that out. I, I hope it comes through. <laughs> it sounds like it's coming through. Yeah. Well, go writer, go. And I can't wait to, to read your audiobook. <laughs> and um, I'm really looking forward to all of our future connections, Christina. You have moved my heart in such a big way with A Wish in the Dark. I, um, It's so beautiful. And I'm so, uh, again, I feel so privileged to get to hear you and your story and your upbringing that led to it. All of the ways that you, that you have fingerprints all over this story are beautiful. Uh, so oh, I want to, <laughs> of course, I want to give you a chance to, because I've been so, so genuinely moved, I want to give you a chance to speak directly to your other readers. 
Um, and so we'll close this way <laughs> with a big goofy smile on my face because that was not a graceful transition. <laughs> yeah, it was. That was fine. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway. Anyway. Um, all sincere. So I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message, Christina, that I can bring to them from you? Yes. Yes, I have. I have two things. So in Buddhism, we are taught that the most important person in the world is the person that you're with. And so if I'm with you or if Mr. Winner is with you, then you are the most important person in the world. So I, I really want them to know that. And then the second thing is, can I tell them a joke, Matthew? Oh, my word, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is my daughter told me this joke, and I blasted out laughing. What is a mermaid's favorite kind of music? Um, Bubble rap. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 600 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the free music archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and don't reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Become a patron and you can directly impact and help to sustain the podcast. Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that is a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.